right, all right, here we go. Show me that smile, oh, show me that smile. I think I'll just turn this podcast into me singing old theme songs. Welcome, everybody. Josh Rosenberg here with you for episode 11. Sit back, relax, buckle up. It's going to be a rocky one today. Don't waste another minute on your crying. Who are you thinking of right now? Alan Thicke? Perhaps. The incomparable Kurt Cameron? Most likely, Michael Seaver, who went on to star in some of the greatest films of our time, including Like Father, Like Son. Or not. What about Leonardo DiCaprio, where he got his start? Whatever happened to him? Really loved his work on Growing Pains, did not keep tabs on his future, but I wish that young man the best. Do you think of Little Chrissy? Little Chrissy was the baby they added to the show when they were jumping the shark to try to keep the viewers knowing that the end is very near. Kind of like the Cosby show when they added Raven Simone, who was 100% the cutest child actress of all time. But you remember Olivia, little Olivia, when she was added to the Cosby show. Wow, did you hear that sound? What the hell was that? When she was added to the Cosby show, all of a sudden it saved the show. Rudy grew up. That's dangerous for a child actor or a child actress when they grow up and all of a sudden the appeal isn't there anymore. And then Rudy grows up and the writers of The Cosby Show realize we need something. So they brought on Olivia and Raven Simone saves the day. Did not work for Growing Pains. Little Chrissy, not a compelling storyline at all. Probably went on three seasons after they jumped the shark. And if you don't know what jumped the shark means, that is the point of a show or really anything in life where the quality starts to diminish, where it goes downhill quickly. And it all comes from a Happy Days episode where the Fonz, Fonzie, uh, is water skiing, I believe, and jumps over a shark. And in the opinion of John Hine, the guy who created the phrase jump the shark, a guy who is actually my cousin, believe it or not, somehow my cousin, I'll explain. But when Fozzie, or Fonzie, not Fozzie Bear from the Muppets, but when Fonzie jumps the shark, then Happy Days all of a sudden plummets in the eyes of John Hine. How is he my cousin? Uh, his mom is my mom's first cousin, twice removed, second cousin, step half. How do relatives even work? Once you get past cousins, who could even keep track of all the many ways you're related to somebody? Honestly, whenever somebody says, oh yeah, he's my second cousin, he's my third cousin, uh, once removed on my dad's side, but there was a divorce, and so we're not blood related, we're half, or step, I lose track quickly. But yeah, John Hine, who actually is a blood relative, invented Jump the Shark, wrote a book about it, had a website, sold it, got rich. Howard Stern turned him into a big celeb, and I think he's still on the radio. I don't really know. But how did I even get into this Jump the Shark? Oh yeah, Growing Pains. Show me that smile. That's been stuck in my head for a while. Uh, hopefully this podcast has not jumped the shark yet. Just wait. It will, just like everything. It's kind of a microcosm of life. Nothing lasts forever. Uh, but episode 11, it's going to be hot, hot, hot today, folks. Uh, I'm going to get into a little Jim Carrey and Gary Shandling. I saw the documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. It's over four hours. That's too long. I was saying podcasts can be long because you don't have to listen to them all in one sitting. But my God, over four hours for the Gary Shandling documentary. You better split that up. There's a part one, there's a part two, and you should probably split up part one and part two. But it's really good. I'll jump into that. I'll get into my addiction to Saturday Night Live. It's an unhealthy addiction. I'll tell you where it started, how it started, and what it looks like today. I'm in rehab, but they still allow me to watch SNL. At least they allow me to fast forward through SNL, so I watch it in about 25 minutes. 
I want to get into journalism today a little bit. Yeah, there's going to be a lesson in journalism and then a scary tech story. Legitimately scary tech story out there that's going to haunt your mind. If it's true, it'll be like Black Mirror. It'll fuck your sleep up a little bit. If you have not seen Black Mirror on Netflix, check it out just one time. Pick any episode and then try to go to sleep afterwards. All right, there's that sounder again. I don't have a clue what that means. Maybe that sounder means something, though. Maybe it's the phrase of the day that pays. Be the second caller right now to 1999. Let's turn this into some hokey radio show. All right, can I start by saying Jim Carrey deserves our respect? Can I start by defending the fantastic, fabulous Jim Carrey for a moment? So, of course, his career has jumped the shark a long time ago. But... He has resurfaced in the news, a lot of articles that say Carrie's gone crazy, Jim Carrey is now nuts. But if you actually listen to the interviews, they're kind of intriguing. They're kind of interesting. You have to piece together the puzzle. What the fuck is he really saying? Instead of just being dismissive and reading the headline and going, yeah, he is crazy. Instead of just going along with how society is treating this man, try to think about it with your own intuition, understanding his situation. And this is probably getting too deep about a former comic actor. I have to say a former comic actor. I don't think he's making movies anymore. But the first time I ever saw Jim Carrey, Earth Girls Are Easy, anybody? He played an alien. He was pretty good. But of course, it was forgettable. You never thought that is the making of a big-time comedic career. And then, of course, In Living Color, where he was the only white guy on the cast but a scene stealer. And Fire Marshal Bill was a big character. I remember in elementary school, everybody doing impressions of Jim Carrey characters on In Living Color. What a cast that was, by the way. A bunch of Wayans, Tommy Davidson, David Allen Greer, Jamie Foxx, and this guy Jim Carrey, who was apparently just such a great stand-up comic at the Comedy Store that Damon Wayans told his brother Keenan Ivory, you better put this guy on the cast. He'll take our show from good to great. And that is what happened. So Jim Carrey becomes a star, you know, a pretty big star on In Living Color, but it's not until Ace Ventura... Dumb and Dumber, The Cable Guy, The Mask, The Truman Show, where he becomes the biggest name in comedy for many years, many years. And I don't have to take you down his filmography, but he even proved that he can act in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He showed you that he's got some chops. He knows what he's doing. And then just like most comedic actors, it dries up. Maybe the viewership is down. Box office sales are down. Maybe he kind of gets sick of being pigeonholed into a a corner of just being known as a funny guy and he wants to do more dramatic roles and the scripts just aren't coming. I don't know. But he started to tail off. If you ever saw Fun with Dick and Jane or Yes Man, you know, the shitty movies he made towards the end, you realized, oh, it's not working anymore. That's the case with a lot of great comedy actors. Just stops working. And for him, it was not like you have to just reinvent yourself as an entertainer. It almost seemed like you got to reinvent yourself as a person. So it appears that he's currently having a crisis, right? A crisis. But maybe we could learn a little something, something from this. So I guess the news was that his girlfriend committed suicide a few years ago, and then he became very depressed. But while he's been depressed, he says things like, none of this matters. What is this thing called life? Who am I? Who is Jim Carrey? I'm nothing. You're nothing. This is all nothing. And people go, oh, he's so depressed. He's so insane. But if you really listen to the interviews and you hear what he's saying, he actually makes some interesting points. He was saying, my parents just named me Jim. You know, they slapped me with a label. 
I had adversity in my childhood. I grew up to need laughter to heal my soul. It worked. You know, he was rubber face. He was physical comedy. He was sketch comedy. He was stand-up comedy. He was movie comedy. He was every type of comedy that works. He just had the right look. He could adapt. When he did Andy Kaufman and Man on the Moon, he proved that he could even become like a chameleon. He could become, truly, literally become another comic to play a comic in a pretty good biopic. Not great. Man on the Moon was pretty good. Not great. But he had the biggest price tag in Hollywood for many years, and then it just crumbles. And when that crumbles, he's still Jim Carrey, but we, the millions upon millions of moviegoers, stop caring as much. So I guess there's an emptiness in his soul, and how does he come to terms with it? He has to say, I guess, you know, it's all nothing. It's just a fabrication, this whole thing called life. As if he was looking at his fame as artificial. Just a man-made creation, fabricated, and now... He's back to looking in the mirror and seeing the same exact person, but maybe the reaction is different. And he turns to painting. He's no longer into acting. He likes to paint. But for me, I think it's fascinating. I think he's making some interesting philosophical points. And I'm doing a shitty job of conveying that, but I can't stand all these headlines that say Jim Carrey has gone nuts. It's like, why? Why? Do we need him to just still be the guy who falls down? Do we still need funny faces? And funny voices to appreciate the guy? Can't we learn that he's evolving as a person? He did an hour and a half interview with Norm MacDonald, and he's still kind of funny. Like, it's still in there. At some point, it's still in there. But it's called Norm MacDonald Live. It's like a video podcast. It was a great interview. And yeah, he's a little weird now, but I like weird. I think comics should be weird. I don't need my comics to be all buttoned up and very normal. I like when the comics are just out there a little bit. And he's out there, but I don't want him to be labeled insane just because he's expressing his wild views about the world, which is why he needs a podcast, which is what this is. I'm going to express my wild views about the world, and they're probably not too wild, at least compared to Jimmy. Plus, I realize if I was going to be cynical, I would say, well, his realization that he doesn't matter and he's just a fabrication of the world named Jim and nothing ever matters and the world is fake and it's just one big continuum where we're passing through, you know, all this depressing philosophy that he's feeding us. We could say, yeah, it coincides with the fact that your career completely jumped the shark where you no longer are funny and how depressing for Jim that sequel to Dumb and Dumber, Dumb and Dumber 2 which was so brutally unfunny throughout the whole thing, you almost wondered, wait, was the original that funny? Because they just recreated every joke. The original was funny in the mid-90s. Dumb and Dumber was probably one of the funniest movies of all time, but I've never seen such a bad sequel, ever. It was almost like he and Jeff Daniels just came together. They said, let's make a little cash. Let's dupe everybody into thinking that we're going to put together a real sequel, a funny sequel, and they just delivered hot shit on a platter for two hours. I think I had one laugh. It was a big laugh, but just one compared to the original Dumb and Dumber that was brilliant. That was a treasure. I've never seen humans laugh that hard in a movie theater in my entire life. People were falling on the ground. People were applauding. The first time I ever saw Dumb and Dumber, it was like a sold-out crowd on a Friday night. It had more energy than an NFL game. Like The laughter was just at a different level for that movie, and then it dissipates. That's why fame is weird. And that kind of leads me into discussing the Gary Shandling documentary, another Judd Apatow creation, or I should say masterpiece. Judd Apatow, you know, we don't throw around the word genius a lot. He is a genius when it comes to producing honest films, like really funny films. And this documentary is just a bunch of interviews and 
discoveries about Gary and his writing, his actual diaries. It's the Gary Shandling Show and the Larry Sanders Show and whatever else you would know him from, his Tonight Show appearances. But it's really good. It takes a long time to get through it. It's almost too long. But that's the only negative. It's compelling. It's heartfelt. It's emotional. You can tell Judd is very connected. Judd Apatow was a writer on the Larry Sanders show, so he was a good friend of Gary's. But a couple things stood out. Number one, his first Tonight Show appearance. And back then, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, that was the number one vehicle to launch your career. If you were a stand-up comedy performing at the Comedy Store in L.A. or the Improv, and you got that three-minute set on Johnny Carson, that could take you from a nobody to a somebody and an absolute superstar in the blink of an eye. That's just how it worked back then. It was the classic Freddie Prince story. Young Freddie Prince was really just a nobody, good-looking young man, went on The Tonight Show, and all of a sudden, he was the hottest name in Hollywood, just based on three or four minutes doing a set in front of Johnny Carson, and if Johnny brings you to the couch, then boom, you're a legend. You're an immediate legend. Well, that was Gary Shanling. It all happened perfectly. You know, the producer for Johnny Carson came to see him at the comedy store. His set was so good. The producer said, I want to make sure it's not a fluke. I got to come back and see you again. And it was just as good because Gary was a brilliant comic. And he does his set on The Tonight Show. Of course, Johnny Carson loves him. And then as Bob Saget tells the story in this documentary, he comes backstage and starts to cry. Why? Why tears? And I think as Bob Saget was explaining it, and by the way, Bob Saget, very emotional in this documentary. You get to see how attached he was to Gary and how sad it is because Gary did die a few years back. But as Bob is describing, Gary comes off stage, you know, the highest moment of his career and immediately cries. And it's not like tears of happiness. The tears represented, I just reached my goal in life and I'm still a young man. What can surpass this? It's almost the fear of reaching your dream. And I know a lot of people think that might sound ridiculous, but what if you did? What if most Americans were able to attain their biggest goal in life? There would be immediate pressure to surpass that. If you're ambitious, and I think most people are wired to be ambitious enough to climb the mountaintop in life, but for Gary Shanley to spend that many years hoping to get on The Tonight Show, where America is going to see you do stand-up comedy, and to succeed, he immediately felt the pressure, not the relief, but the pressure to do a set that was better, and the pressure to do a set that more people would enjoy, and the pressure to write more jokes. He probably wrote the greatest jokes of his life for The Tonight Show, and they were immediately retired because everybody heard him. So that's the challenge for a comic. But also the classic Larry David story, when they pitched the pilot for Seinfeld, and they actually approved it, and they did a season, and it wasn't that successful, but then they said, we're going to order another season. Larry David started to cry also. He's like, wait, I don't know if I have another season in me. Some of the great geniuses are apparently insecure or lack the confidence to realize that they are sustainable, that they can do it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Pressure in general is a motherfucker. It can completely clobber you. It can destroy you. It could probably put you into a depression if you felt too much pressure in life, or it could have the exact opposite effect. It could launch you in the right direction. It could be that type of adrenaline feeling, that stress that actually makes you do things, that makes you very productive, where you challenge yourself. And maybe it's not fun, the process is not fun, but the result is fun. Think about how many things in life have a difficult process, but then you look back at the end result and you go, oh, actually, that was all worth it. Parenting. 
I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. Parenting. It's a tough little process, but then you have those moments where you go, oh, okay, it's worth it. Now they're walking. Now they're talking. Now they're developing an identity. Or on a completely different level, the high school newspaper that we do at Novato High School, it's a tough process. The editing process, the adjusting process, the finding the right sources and quotes, and making the newspaper, the actual formatting, it's not fun. It's grueling, but in the end, when you have that hard copy in your hand and it looks polished and it looks smooth and it looks good to go, aesthetically very pleasing, then it's all worth it. I feel like I completely got off topic, but that's really what this podcast is. Probably for the listener, a little annoying if you want me to go back to something, but I don't really have many notes. So I realized I was talking about Gary Shandling at some point. I do recommend it. Troubled genius. Oh yeah, the idea of calling it Zen Diaries though It's his own handwriting, and they're narrating it the entire time. He does talk about the power of spirituality and meditation because he has trouble finding happiness and joy. And that's weird for a lot of us who look at a job like that. Stand-up comedian, actor, why are you so miserable? Why are you so depressed? We can't understand, but just like any job, if it's an obligation, maybe it took the fun out of it at times to realize that he was always being measured by his last joke. Not his body of work, but his most recent joke. That's what happens if you take a life in the spotlight. If you're center stage, people do not judge you based on your body of work. They judge you on the last thing they saw. For athletes, right? Most athletes have a shitty end to their careers where they become old and slower and less talented. And sadly, they get ripped apart by fans. And then they just kind of waltz into retirement. It's not always riding off into the sunset like John Elway. A lot of athletes, they kind of just limp off into retirement and depression and wonder where the money went. All right, that was too negative. Moving on, folks. Moving on. And just to bring it back to Jim Carrey, there is the story that Jim Carrey auditioned for Saturday Night Live, and Lauren said, nope, not exactly what we're looking for. And a lot of celebrities have this story, that Lauren Michaels wasn't feeling it. But you can never look at Lauren and say, God, you make mistakes. Hey, he makes a few, just like anybody, but... Lorne Michaels is one of the most powerful names in the history of comedy, and that show is still on TV from the mid-70s. It's now 2018. Same show, same format. Have a host, have a monologue, have a fake commercial, a few skits, weekend update, a few more skits. Farewell. And I still watch. I'll never miss an episode. If that show is still on and I'm in my 70s and 80s, I will never miss an episode because DVR makes it just too easy. You record it, you watch it the next day on Sunday. For me, it's Sunday morning live, and you get through it in about a half hour. It's a beautiful thing, because most of the skits are not funny, but I still watch. Why would I commit to watching something where I know it's not that funny? It's just the zeitgeist kind of keeps me tapped into pop culture. What's going on? And I realize that because I'm so detached from these musical guests. I don't even know who they are, and I hate it all. I'm the old man who goes, back in my day, rap was so much better. Back in my day, rock was so much better. These musical guests are usually so awful on my ears, but I realize Saturday Night Live is not catering to me. It's catering to the pulse of young people. So bringing me back to when I was a young person, my first taste of SNL were the reruns. Nick at Night used to run a half hour of the old SNLs when I was about 9 or 10 years old. So like 1990, 1991. Nick at Night, Nickelodeon, they would show you the old wild and crazy guys. Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin, they would show you Samurai, John Belushi. They would show you Chevy Chase, Garrett Morris, Gilda Radner, who was my favorite. 
I think from the original cast, Gilda was probably the most talented. And she was also married to Gene Wilder. How about that little fun fact that most of you already knew? But I remember loving it. I didn't even realize what I was loving because I thought this was just an old show from the 70s. And my parents used to see me enjoying Saturday Night Live reruns of that original cast. And they eventually told me, you know, the show is still on. And I think when I was 10 years old, they allowed me to stay up late one night and just see the first part of a new Saturday Night Live. I vividly remember this. It rocked my world. It was one of those moments where I went, this is everything. I mean, this is really the type of comedy that I've been searching for, a real 10-year-old search. I was on a journey as a 10-year-old. I was growing out of Alvin, Simon, and Theodore. I needed something new. And here's how photographic my memory is. It was the Kevin Bacon episode, which probably means nothing to a lot of you, but if that's 91, then we're talking about Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Phil Hartman, David Spade, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, Chris Rock, Kevin Nealon. Are you hearing these names? all assembled in the same cast, it doesn't get better. I mean, that has to be viewed as the glory days, right? Not the original cast, not the slop we have on right now, but that early 90s cast on SNL. The first skit, I think, was Rob Schneider, the copy machine guy. Robbie, Robberino, which I'm not sure is that funny anymore, but back then when I was 10, it was so, so hysterical. Dana Carvey's church lady. Dana Carvey's John McLaughlin group. Dana Carvey's Garth. Are you kidding me? I mean, Dana was the big one. He was the star. Phil Hartman's Caveman Lawyer. Kevin Nealon's Weekend Update was good. I mean, everything was good. It even seemed like the musical guests were right up my alley. And from that point on, I was an addict. Actually tried to fight my eyelids for so many years to stay up late. And get at least past Weekend Update. But there were still VCRs. There was still VHS recording back then. So I was still watching most of it the next day. But as the show has evolved and evolved and evolved, it's just like a part of life now. It's like religion. You know, do I agree with everything I hear about my religion? No. Am I a religious person? Not really. But am I Jewish? Yeah. It's like Saturday Night Live. Do I love it? No, not really. Do I think the cast members are talented? A few. Does it matter? If I fast forward through a few skits, no, not really. But is it a part of me? Yeah, it's in my DNA. I'll just be watching SNL forever. So here on the Here We Go podcast, I'm going to give you a few lists. This is just all according to me. And please agree, disagree, get a hold of me through any of the social media bullshit out there. Let me know your thoughts. But I put together a 555 list. The trifecta. 555. Triple Cinco. I'm going to give you the five most underrated performers in SNL history. I'm going to give you the five greatest performers, the five greatest cast members in SNL history. And I'm also going to give you the five worst, not to be a jerk and just call out the five worst and say they suck. They're probably really good to get on that show. You got to be pretty good, but I'll give you the five worst all according to me. And this is highly debatable. I know this is serious stuff. You tune into this podcast. You don't get hot political talk. You get my five underrated cast members of all time. My five best, my five worst. Here we go. I'm starting with the underrated. Number five, five to one. I'm going to build the suspense on you. Number five, he's currently on the cast. His name is Kyle Mooney. Do you know who this guy is? He's skinny. He has long Kenny G hair. He has glasses. He's an absurdist. His skits are not that good, but you get the feeling like they could be. 
Like his skits make you feel weird. And there was even a movie. He even produced a movie. I haven't seen. I have to see it about a bear. But Kyle Mooney, the first time I saw him, it was on the Norm MacDonald sports show on Comedy Central, which was a total flop, but he was like the correspondent who was beyond nerdy. I think he was like supposed to be developmentally delayed. It was an interesting character. And then he and Beck Bennett, who I think were buddies putting together their little videos, they got discovered by Lorne Michaels, and now they're on the cast. And I bet they do a lot of the writing, but their own video shorts, not quite Andy Sandberg quality video shorts, but their videos are pretty good. However, Kyle Mooney is underrated because there's a part of him that is going to bust out. He's raw. I like that word, raw for an athlete. Kyle Mooney, very raw. And they created a storyline where he and Leslie Jones are lovers, which is still kind of funny. He's always kind of funny. He does the stand-up comic who's always awful on Weekend Update, Bruce something with that leather jacket, and his jokes are always just like really milk toast. And then he gets emotional about his career. So that's number five for me. Number four is a guy you've never heard of called Jeff Richards. Why did I say called Jeff Richards? Named Jeff Richards. He used to be drunk girl. He was a great impressionist. He did Dave Letterman. He did Willy Wonka, a Gene Wilde character. He did Louis Anderson. You know who this guy is? For some reason, he would always come and do stand-up in San Diego, whether it was at the Comedy Store or the Comedy Palace. But Jeff Richards would always come to San Diego to do a show, and I saw him probably four times. I don't know if I've ever seen a stand-up comedian four times, but Jeff Richards, I used to go to his shows, say hi to him afterwards. He was phenomenal. He was so funny. I don't have a clue why people get fired from Saturday Night Live. It's kind of like the unspoken rules. If you get fired, you don't talk to the press. People don't want to go against Lorne, the Godfather, the Last Don. But Jeff Richards was hysterical. If you ever just look him up, some of the skits he was in, usually a correspondent on Weekend Update, babbling about nothing. He was great. Really funny. And his stand-up is underrated. I don't know why he's not one of the big names on Netflix. All right, that's my number four, Jeff Richards. Number three, Sherry O'Terry. Wasn't she cute? You know Sherry. I know Sherry. We all know Sherry because she had a good run. It was the cast that launched after the whole Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, David Spade, Rob Schneider, even Jay Moore towards the end. When that cast retired or moved away they brought in an immediately new cast top to bottom and sherry was like the top female performer she immediately had reoccurring skits reoccurring roles colette reardon the cheerleaders she was so funny but it's weird when you think about the greatest female performance in snl history no one talks about sherry o'terry adorable little four foot eleven sherry o'terry a scene stealer nothing came of her career. Or maybe there's a show she's on that I don't watch, but she never was in a movie, was she? Like a star of a movie? She never had a Kristen Wiig type of career, and I don't know why. So that's why I say she's underrated. She was good on the show. Most people loved her when she was a cast member, but underrated because nothing ever became of her. All right, number two, Vanessa Bayer. Vanessa Bayer. She should have had the Kristen Wiig career. She played Jacob, the little bar mitzvah boy on Weekend Update. That big old smile, teeth would take up her whole face. She's gone. Nobody really knows why. But most recently, she came back as the weather girl on Weekend Update. Fuck. That was so funny. Like, really laugh out loud funny. Vanessa Bayer, a star. And I don't know if anything's going to become of her career. She did a cameo on the show Love. If you watch Love, another Judd Apatow show. She's awesome. And my number one. 
Number one, I don't have a drum roll. I don't have any sound effects. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, speed it up, spit it out. Who's your number one most underrated cast member ever? His name is Horatio. Are you kidding me? Horatio Sands was the funniest. In a few skits, and he would always break up. He and Jimmy Fallon, good buddies. They would make each other laugh. But there were a few skits where it was like, even the viewers, even me at home, crying with laughter. Uh, The Aquarium Repairmen. Look that skit up. Farai Mutar, Middle Eastern talk show host. These are skits that no one talks about. They did not become famous skits. They didn't become part of pop culture with the catchphrases. But they were so good. Saddam Hussein, played by Horatio Sands. The Debbie Downer skits with Rachel Dratch and Horatio couldn't keep it together. Gobi, the stoner on the dorm cam. I could just go on and on about Horatio, but nothing really came of his career. He shows up in TV shows now and again, but never had like a big Will Ferrell type of career. Not a real stand-up comedian either. I actually don't have a clue why. That's why I call him underrated. Horatio Sands, just looking at him is funny. And I think that is a part of comedy. You got to look funny. You can't just look like a corporate businessman. Horatio Sands looked like a guy. If you never even met him, you'd say, I want to talk to him. He looks funny. All right, I'm going to get to the worst five right now ever i'm gonna go pretty quickly the worst five cast members of all time and these are the cast members where you go wait why why are they on the show because they're like truly unfunny and they almost seem like the type of people where you wouldn't want to approach them and talk to them because they wouldn't make you laugh at a cocktail party what cocktail party i don't know just randomly threw that out there all right number five from a couple of years ago sashir zameda You remember, Lorne Michaels was under fire. Saturday Night Live was under fire because of their lack of minorities on the cast. No black women. So they found Sashir Zameda. And it was a big story. Zameda, the first black woman since Ellen Cleghorn in many years. Or Maya Rudolph. Give her a chance. She's going to be good. She wasn't. And everybody wanted her to be good. But it was almost like Such a mistake to find such an unfunny cast member who was also supposed to fill the shoes of being a minority woman cast member on the show. So there was pressure on her, but she never had any success in any of the skits. Uh, Number four, the worst ever, Al Franken. Al Franken. I know some people love him. And forget about what you know about Al Franken in the news today because it's easy to pile on. I'm not bringing him up for that reason. I'm bringing him up because... Every skit, he was bad. Even Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. That was always just okay. And it became the worst movie in the history of movies. Stuart Saves His Family or Stuart Saves the World. Stuart Smalley, the therapist who would help his guests get through their problems. And I know it was supposed to be really good, but it was always a C-. minus. All right, number three, John Lovitz. Yeah, that's the ticket. John Lovitz, not really good. The Liar, great, he lies. He looks like he's out to lunch, too. Kind of deranged in the head, huh? You just look at him in the eyes. You go, oh, boy. This guy's not focused. This guy's on a different planet. And his stand-up is really bad, too. Now I'm just piling on. You gotta love my worst five, how angry it gets. And his stand-up sucks, and he's not funny, and he looks like he's out to lunch. I don't know what that means, but if you ever watch old John Lovett's skits, he kind of just takes up room. Deep down, you're like, "Why, why not just put Phil Hartman in this one? Uh, Number two, Tim Meadows. I think he spent 30 years on the show. I don't know why. I don't understand the longevity. 
for Tim Meadows. He seems like a sweet guy, though, doesn't he? He seems like a nice guy. Like, he should have been on a sitcom. He should have been the dad on a sitcom. Not a cast member on a great sketch comedy show. He was vegetable lasagna. He was just blah. Vanilla. Tim Meadows, they thought he finally had a hit with the ladies' man. Who the hell ever laughed at ladies' man? Which became a movie also, like Stuart Saves His Family. Why turn shitty skits into movies? I don't get it. But I have zero memories of Tim Meadows ever making me laugh, except you you almost felt bad for him. Like he wanted to get out of his contract with SNL. Just free me from this already. It's not working. Tim Meadows skits, never good. And the ladies' man movie, outside of Will Ferrell's part in it, terrible terrible number one you ready for this pull over if you're driving just pull over actually it's not that earth shattering uh he's currently on the cast but the worst cast member of all time is pete davidson i don't get it at all do you hear how i said the word all that's how emotional i am about this guy he's just mean his stand-up comedy is mean And on a weekend update, they bring him on as Pete Davidson. He's the least versatile cast member I've ever seen. They could give him a costume and a wig and makeup. It's still unfunny Pete. And he's just upset about things. And he's going through rehab and he likes to talk about how angry he is about how he's viewed. But I don't see the comedy in it. If he had a podcast and it was called, you know, Depressing Angry Pete, I'd listen. I'd think, all right, he's probably smart enough to make some interesting points. But once again, if you're on a sketch comedy that needs to be funny, why do you hire a guy who's just really not funny? The character Chad, he plays a character Chad who just says one word here and there. I don't get it. I now have to fast forward through Pete Davidson skits. And I think I'm in the minority. I think a lot of America loves him. That's why they keep bringing him back season after season. Maybe they pity him around Saturday Night Live. I don't get it. And he's come out to Cobb's Comedy Club. Why would I pay 25 bucks to see this guy? Okay, I got it out of my system. That's all mean. It's all negative. I feel bad. Just had to get it out of my system. As I now transition into the five greatest cast members of all time. From five to one. Here's what you've been waiting for. All right, number five of all time, Kristen Wiig. Scene stealer, great impressionist, cute, big movie career, bridesmaids, awesome. Number five, Kristen Wiig. And I remember even when she got on the cast, it was like, oh, yeah, the first time you ever saw her in any skit, you just went, oh, yeah, she's got it. She's got the it factor, boys. Uh, Number four, Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey was a heavyweight. Bay Area guy, so I got extra love for him. But those years, early 90s, he was the focal point of every skit. Until my number one came along, but I'll wait for that. Number three for me is Adam Sandler. And of course, I'm going to say Adam Sandler. You kidding me? When I was a little Jewish boy watching Saturday Night Live and this guy was doing the Hanukkah song on Weekend Update, that's all I needed. Yeah, he was anointed as a legend back then. And not really anymore. His movies are not good. I can't even defend him. I tried so hard to keep defending Adam Sandler, but his movies are just really bad now. But when he was early on the skit on the show and just did weird voices randomly here and there, it worked. It's probably immature comedy. Like if I went back and watched it, I'd go, wow, this is pretty juvenile, pretty sophomore. But I liked it. I was young. It was hilarious. In those skits where the Italian waiters would just lick Kirstie Alley, he was great. Opera Man, that was good. Cajun Man, that was good. And then the first time you saw him in his own movie, Billy Madison, I was like, oh, God, this is so great. 
into Happy Gilmore. He had a good run, The Waterboy. He even kind of had some decent dramatic roles, Spanglish and Funny People. I thought Click was good. I almost cried in Click. Isn't that weird? An Adam Sandler movie. It actually got to my corazón, my heart. But then the last few years, it's like, all right, just stop. Just stop. Just go be a family man. These aren't working. Yet his comedy tapes, they're all going to laugh at me. His comedy CDs, the albums, holy shit, were those amazing. All right, number two for me is Will Ferrell. Don't even really need to explain why. Although I guess that's part of the podcast, explaining why. But nah, I'm not going to. Just Will Ferrell was the greatest of his era. I think that's undeniable. But the greatest of all time, in my opinion, is yet another undeniable selection. And that's Chris Farley, folks. Chris Farley. That's timeless. Like Chris Farley would have never jumped to the shark. If he was still making movies, I would still be there on opening night for all the movies. I liked everything he's ever done. I can't say that for any other cast member. Every single skit he's ever been in, I liked. Every single movie he's ever done, I liked. Of course, Tommy Boy was great. Black Sheep was great. Almost Heroes, that weird one with Matthew Perry. I think the last movie he ever did was great. They're all great. His cameo in Dirty Work. Are you kidding me? He had his nose bit off by a Saigon whore. That is funny. It's all funny. And did his weight contribute to the comedy? Of course. Let's not be so PC around here. And sadly, he got caught up with the Belushi path. You know, he loved fame. He lived fame. He was a big personality. So anybody that saw him on the streets, he felt the pressure to be that Chris Farley in front of them. Yes, let's drink. Let's smoke. Let's snort. And that was Farley every day until the end. He just partied his ass off. But there was also a sincere aspect to him that was almost childlike. You see a few interviews with Chris Farley. He was just so wonderful. Such a nice person. A beautiful person. I will even say that. But the Chippendales skip, when he was auditioning to be a Chippendales dancer with Patrick Swayze, that's the biggest A-plus in SNL history. That's undebatable. Forget it. We're not debating it. Farley, number one. Number one. They did say, though, right? After his death, he had a script to play Fatty Arbuckle in his first attempt to ever do drama. Wouldn't that have been fun if Farley transitioned successfully into drama just for a movie or two? We never got to see that. We always just saw, you know, Matt Foley falling into tables, Chris falling through doors, falling through walls, falling off roofs. All right. It sounds simple. Just have the fat guy fall, but there was more depth. You can't just have any fat guy fall. Chris Farley was the greatest legend with fat guys falling. All right, there's the list. There's the 555 that you didn't even ask for, but you got it for free. Thank you for subscribing to this podcast or streaming or downloading. Or if you even feel compelled for leaving a review. Thank you for all of that. All right, I'm transitioning into the last thing I want to talk about. And it's based on an article that scared the shit out of me. Scared the balls right off of me. And it's about tech. I don't understand anything about tech. I really don't. Even when I watch TV, I don't understand how the TV works. I don't understand how our cell phones work. I don't understand FaceTime, how I could have a conversation, a video conversation with somebody in Spain right now. I don't get that. I need to see the wires. I need to see it plug into something if I'm going to understand anything electronically or technological. Otherwise, it's just science fiction in my mind. It's just a dystopian future that we're in. I worked in radio for 12 years. I don't have a clue how radio works. Here's what they say, though. Here's what they say. Think about how fictional this sounds. Oh, radio? 
That's just electricity flowing into transmitters and making electrons vibrate up and down, producing radio waves. And then those waves travel through the air. We can't even see these radio waves, but they're traveling through the air at the speed of light. And when they arrive at a receiver antenna, then they make electrons vibrate inside of it. And that's how we get to listen to Howard Stern. What the fuck? Somebody invented this? Humans invented this? Transmitters, antennas, radio waves? I don't understand. It's just something that flows through the air and we don't see. If you're science-minded and you do understand, you're in the minority. 99.9% of people don't understand how the things work that they use. We don't understand little things. Computers, microwaves, airplanes, spaceships, air conditioning. I don't get it. I don't get any of it. But I've accepted it. I've accepted all of these things. I don't get it, but I accept it. Because this is supposed to be real life, right? We're all living real life until now. There was an article from Engadget.com. And the article says, stay with me because this will scare you too. If this is real, and this is a real article, but I don't know if it'll ever truly exist. There are kids at MIT, or there are people at MIT, who have created something that you wear on your face, a device that you wear on your face. And this device reads your thoughts and transmits them into words. Okay, there's the mic drop. I'm done. No more. Technology has now proven that we're all living in a fake world. Now I'm like Jim Carrey. It's not real. None of this is real. It's just a fabricated construct. I'm not even Josh. This isn't even a podcast. Wherever you're listening to me right now, it's not a real place. It's all a man-made artificial creation. Okay, let me take a step back and just read this to you. The MIT system has electrodes. What are those? Okay, I don't want to get caught up on that. The MIT system has electrodes that pick up signals when you verbalize internally, as well as bone conduction headphones, which use vibrations delivered to the bones of your inner ear without obstructing your ear canal. The signals are sent to a computer that uses neural networks, folks, neural networks to distinguish words. So far, the system has been used to do fun things like navigating a Roku, asking for the time, and reporting your opponent's moves in chess. All right, I got to rewind for a moment. Yeah, that's fun. Reporting your opponent's moves in chess. Like if I'm thinking about moving my pawn, this machine will transmit through my thinking into words through a computer and the word electrodes should have been in my last sentence. All right, let me just simplify this. I know I just read a blurb out of this article, but really our thoughts that we think are inside of our head can be read if we put this device on our heads. Fuck it. We're done. We reached the future. No more sci-fi. Nobody ever needs to write another sci-fi book. Nobody ever needs to write another sci-fi movie. This is it. It's now real life. And if this actually happens, it won't feel like real life. This will not feel real if we all are able to have our thoughts read by wearing these devices. And soon they're going to make these devices very small. It says this in the article, inconspicuous devices where our thoughts can just be read by other people. Our fucking thoughts? That's terrifying. That's the most frightening thing I've ever heard for a lot of reasons. That could ruin relationships. But I digress. If you took somebody... Just for a moment, think about somebody who was living in 1764. They're in 1764. You go back in time and you tell that person, do you know that soon 
you know, in the grand scheme of things, soon, you know, by 2004, 2005, 2006, on planet Earth, you'll be able to have a video conversation with somebody in another country, on another continent, and it'll be crystal clear video, nothing connecting you, no wires, no outlets, but you'll just be able to talk to people in other countries and see them at the same time. Tell that to somebody in the 1700s. It'll blow their mind. Just like you're telling me now, thoughts can be read. And how are they saying it? Uh, we verbalize internally our bone conduction. Uh, our inner ears are delivering neural networks to distinguish the words we're thinking about. And this all brings me to something that I never thought could exist. And of course, it still can't. But what if? Let's just black mirror this podcast for a moment. What if? What if? we could insert a microchip into our brains, into our minds to record our dreams. And then the next day on our televisions, we could watch our dreams. If that ever happens, I would be the happiest person in the world. And we've all thought about that, right? Cause we've all tried to explain our dreams to other people. And it's not interesting for other people to hear us when we explain our dreams. You realize that, right? They're just like, Oh, is he done yet? Who cares? Oh, really? There was a snake. Oh, wow, they jumped the shark. Oh, whoa, you got shot? Oh, it was a sex dream? How'd that go? Oh, really? You were getting destroyed by pirates at the sea? No way. You were in a hot air balloon with a bunch of penguins and lions? Oh, great. So all of this is interesting to us. Our dreams are interesting. What if we could see them? So now you're listening and saying that'll never happen. It's impossible. And you probably have scientific reasons why. However, did you ever think that there'd be a device to read our thoughts? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. So the dream machine, I'm going to try to get a patent on that. I'm just giving you the idea. If you're a scientist listening to my podcast, you probably are thinking, well, there is a way. Well, we could take the electrodes and put them through the magnetic waves and then all of a sudden take your cerebral cortex and we twist that through a wire. And uh, yeah, there is a way. And soon there'll be an app to just show people your dreams. Hey, this is what I was doing last night when I was unconscious lying in my bed. All right, things got weird, but that's how it should be on this podcast. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, do it. Like Ben Stiller and Starsky and Hutch, do it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, do it at jrosenberg957. My book, still available for all 12 of you that plan to read it one day, suddenly facing reality, find it on Amazon or Author House. There are a bunch of other things I wanted to get to today, but forget it. I'm done. Go enjoy yourself. I appreciate you listening. That is episode 11 in the books. I'll talk to you soon.